You are listening to a message from Foothills Church in Miraville, Tennessee. More information about Foothills Church can be found online at foothillschurch.com. Well, good morning. It's good to see you all here this morning. This is our final sermon in our marriage sermon series. And so uh, we're excited to, to finalize that. We're also excited for Memorial Day weekend. It's great to have so many folks in this service. Uh, with Memorial Day weekend comes the official start of summer. And so this is uh, really the beginning of uh, a lot of summer activities as school is out. I know we've got a student camp that's coming up this week. Uh, but with summer, one of the components that it always comes up every year is the beginning of wedding season. Right, And so you start getting invitations in the mail uh, to go to weddings. And I just did uh, the first wedding of the year a couple weeks ago uh, here. And uh, with weddings, it's always uh, fun and it's always interesting because with a wedding, there are always a lot of logistics that you cannot control. And so doing weddings, I've seen a lot of things. I've seen candles that just absolutely would not light. I've seen groomsmen pass out multiple times. Some of you guys have seen that. That's particularly funny to everyone except the bride. <laughs> I've seen music not play at the time that it was supposed to. Um, I've actually I've done one wedding in a cabin and I was asked to stand directly in front of a fireplace for the pictures. Uh, and as I uh, continued to, to do the, the wedding sermon, uh, that fire got hotter and hotter, and I literally thought I was going to have third-degree burns by the end of it, and that was the fastest wedding that I have ever done, I can assure you. So there's all of these different things that can go wrong in a wedding, but what I always tell a couple right before uh, the wedding is, hey, look, regardless of what happens here, regardless of if, if everything works out right, you're going to walk out of this married. You're going to walk out of this committed to one another and joined together in marriage. And so just enjoy it. And I can tell you that when I talk to those couples, they all have great plans for what their life is going to look like together. They have great plans for what their marriage is going to be like, what their story is going to be like. And I can tell you that no one I have ever talked to, no couple that I have ever done their wedding has ever had plans to fall into immorality and failure. No one has ever planned to get addicted to pornography. No one has ever planned to fall into adultery. And what statistics tell us is that over 70% of marriages will experience some form of impurity and adultery throughout the course of the marriage. And so the question that I ask myself is if no one, zero, planned for that to happen, and yet statistics would say the majority experience that, where's the disconnect? Why is it that this happens so frequently? And I believe that the reason this morning is because people don't understand the day in and day out commitment to purity that they have to take in their marriage. They don't understand the hard work and the intentionality that it takes to remain committed, to remain pure in their marriage. And so because of this, my encouragement to us this morning, and, and I can tell you, a lot of this, this message this morning will come out of recent experiences and things that I've seen of people right around me, where, where, where things that have happened, and I want so badly for people to understand and to realize and to see the importance of this message in our lives 
and in our families because you cannot simply be passive when it comes to the purity of your life and marriage. You cannot simply be passive when it comes to the purity of your life and your marriage. You have to passionately pursue purity passionately pursue the purity of your life and the purity of your marriage on a daily, even hourly basis. So how do we do this? How do we passionately pursue this purity in our marriage? And that's where we'll be looking to God's word this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter six. I'm gonna begin reading in verse 12 and read down to verse 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful this morning for the fact that we are not left to our own thoughts, our own abilities when it comes to the challenges and realities of of purity in our lives and marriage. We are thankful that you have given us your truth and your word. And so Father, we, we are people, as we look at our culture, as we look at our lives, we realize how much we are in need of your grace and your work And so, Father, we pray this morning that you would speak to us through your word, ultimately to bring glory to Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So as the first point, which I opened with, is that we are called to passionately pursue purity in our marriage. Uh, The first way in which we do that is by fleeing temptation, by fleeing temptation. Now, when it comes to the issue of temptation for impurity, for sexual immorality in our culture, it seems like the options are endless. It, It seems like there are so many sources of temptation when you consider the internet, smartphones, tablets, and apps. And many of you all who are sitting over here have experienced a life that that didn't even exist 10 years ago. There are so many components of of the world of technology in which we're in that that there are literally endless sources of temptation that, that are almost brand new. And when you add that to just the everyday reality of the the people we encounter, the places we go, just our lives in the real world, there are so many sources of temptation towards impurity. It literally seems like the list is endless. And because of that, we need to heed what God's word says and, and, and the direction that God's word gives us very clearly and very consistently on the issue of sexual temptation is run away. We saw in verse 18 that it says to flee immorality. Now, what kind of things do you run from? 
Have you ever run from something? You run from things that are dangerous. You run from things that, that offer some type of harm to you. And the reality is when, when God's word tells us to flee temptation, the reason is because it is dangerous. It is incredibly destructive. It is literally destroying lives and families and churches and communities. And I wonder if we see the danger. I wonder if we honestly believe that, if we honestly see the danger of temptation. And Ephesians 5.3, Paul writes, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Not even a hint, not even a small amount of impurity. Now, if we're honest, this is not how we think. What, what we think is there's a certain amount of impurity, of, of lust, of, of immorality that is, that is allowed, right? And so we want to know what can we do? What, what is available? What is okay? And then there's a line that we believe in our minds that's out there that we can't cross that line. But the problem is, is, is that's not true, Right? Paul and Jesus will tell us there's no amount of impurity that is acceptable because it's incredibly dangerous, right? Impurity and immorality is, is literally like poison. How much poison is safe to drink? Well, none, clearly. Any amount will kill you, will destroy you. And that's what Paul, that's what the Bible, that's what Jesus wants us to see to change our thinking towards this issue. Now, if you were to come over to my house for dinner, if, if my wife and I were, were to invite you over and my wife Jill uh, were to make your dinner, one thing that she might make that would make me happy would be chicken pot pie. Anybody like chicken pot pie? I love chicken pot pie. And she would bring it to the table and you would see the golden brown flaky crust if you cut into it, you would see the chicken and peas and the carrot and that magical goodness that I don't even know what's in it, but it's incredible. And as you begin to eat, you may notice there's another ingredient that you can't quite pick up on. There's something chewy that's in there that you can't identify. And so you say, Jill, this pot pie is great. What is this ingredient that's in it? And she says, well, you know, I was running late and one of the ingredients uh, I just didn't have, I didn't have time to go get. And so I decided to replace it with some dirty used cat litter. Now, what would be your response at my kitchen table to that statement? How much of that pot pie would you be interested in eating? The answer is none, right? How much dirty used cat litter is enticing to you? None, why? Because we know it's disgusting, right? We recognize that and so we don't want any of it. And that's the point that, that Paul is trying to help us see with those eyes. 
that impurity, immorality is disgusting. But it's not only disgusting, it's dangerous. It's destructive. It is literally poison in our lives. And that's why we can have not even a hint, not even a hint, allow. Now, one of the realities that is, that is so invasive and so destructive within our culture, within our marriages, within our church, is the issue of pornography. And a book that I believe is, is incredibly helpful, if you're looking for a resource in this area for yourself or for someone else, uh, there's a book by a man named Heath Lambert called Finally Free. We, we sell it in our cafe. I would recommend it to you. But, but in that book, Heath Lambert says that there is a progression that happens in someone's life when it comes to falling into uh, enslavement to pornography. And what he says, he says is it begins with curiosity. So you're curious about it. You hear about it. Your friends talk about it. You, you hear about it in the news or in culture, and so you're curious. And, and that leads you to the next step, which is flirtation, right? So, so now you, you, you start looking, you, you want to see what it is that this is all about. But then it doesn't stop at flirtation, it moves to fascination. Now you've seen it, you like what you see, and you want more. And it quickly derails into the final step, which he says is fixation, right? This is addiction, where, where you're looking at it regularly, routinely. If you're honest, it has a hold of you. What Dr. Lambert says, is he says that that cycle, that progression happens faster and takes us much further than we ever would have dreamed. And that's why I think it's so important that we realize that even small amounts, even beginning to move to that flirtation stage or that fascination stage, why it's so destructive because this happens every single day. I talk to people on a regular basis where lives are being destroyed, where marriages are being destroyed because of impurity, what began with just a little bit. So what does this mean for us practically? And I think we have to be incredibly discerning about what we watch, what we engage in, what we read. Incredibly discerning. When we consider what we watch, we consider what we look at, we consider how we engage social media, we consider books that we're reading, we have to ask the question, does this glorify God? If I'm honest, right, does this actually glorify God? And if, if it does not, the answer would be flee, right? Glorify or flee. I believe that's how God's word would direct us in this issue. And I think Jesus kind of adds to this and, and gives us an incredibly powerful picture in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter five of the Gospel of Matthew. It says, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. 
For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, this is gross. And and we're probably, when we read this, we're like, Jesus, why would you say something so gross? Tearing out eyeballs? Cutting off hands? Like, this is disgusting. But Jesus is using this imagery that's shocking, that's graphic, because he wants us to see how dangerous and how important it is that we deal radically with our sin. He wants us to understand how important it is that we don't minimize the sin in our lives because he sees, he sees the, he has the aerial view, right? He sees the bigger picture. He sees the consequences. He sees the danger. He sees the destruction. He sees ultimately the death and the hell that is the consequence of engaging in this. And so he wants you to take it as seriously as you possibly can because he realizes the consequences for you. You see, nobody removes a limb because it's fun, right? There's no one in their right mind who has cut off a finger or a hand because it seemed like a fun thing to do. The only reason you take a measure that graphic and that extreme is if it is a life or death issue. If you will die if you don't cut off a hand. Uh, An illustration of this is is a man named Aaron Ralston, who was a hiker and he was hiking in Utah and he was hiking down a gorge. And while he was repelling a suspended boulder fell onto his hand and crushed it up against the side of this cliff. And he was completely trapped. His hand was completely uh, crushed. And for the next five days, he worked tirelessly to somehow get his hand free. He slowly drank the water that he had taken. He slowly ate the small amount of food that he had with him. But when it got to day five, he was completely out and he knew he was about to die. And so he did the only thing he could. He took out a pocket knife that he had with him. He cut off his hand. And he rappelled down to the bottom of the gorge and he found a family who took him to safety. The only reason he would take that drastic and that painful of a measure is because it was the only way to live because he was staring death in the face I think this is the picture Jesus wants us to see that it is that drastic it is a life and death issue the consequences are so serious that we have to take whatever means necessary to avoid them. We have to take whatever means necessary to, to remove whatever is causing us to sin. R- remove the sources of temptation. 
It, it may seem embarrassing or it may seem like it's too costly or too extreme to, to take the, the steps that are really necessary to get the sources of sin, to get the temptation out of our life. But whatever it costs you, it's worth it. Now, as we do this, as we take this step, I believe one thing that's incredibly important for us is that we have people who we're accountable to. We need to find accountability. God has given us within his body the incredible gift of other Christians who can encourage us, who can challenge us, who can know us, who can see our blind spots. And we need to take advantage of that. We need to have people that we can call when we're struggling and tempted. We need to have people that are gonna ask us questions. We need to have people who are gonna encourage us to, to fight this battle in our lives. And maybe, maybe that's where you're at this morning is, is the step you need to take in this issue of purity in your life, in your marriage, is you need to find someone. You need to tell them what you're struggling with. You need to ask them to keep you accountable. It may be embarrassing, but I can assure you it's worth it. Now, in addition to that, one incredibly important thing, essential thing as we're, we're working on pursuing purity in our life, in our marriage, is we need to fill our mind with the truth of God's word. We need to fill our mind with truth. And we see this in Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. How do you keep your way pure? Many of us are asking this. How in the world do you do this? This seems impossible. This seems strange. I don't know anyone who's doing this. The psalmist would say, by knowing and hearing and following the word of God, right? By, by soaking our minds and soaking our hearts with the truth of God's word. And here's the reality is that we live in a culture that is filled with chaos, confusion, and lies when it comes to this issue. Just this week, I read an article about a growing trend among men that are dressing up like dogs. They're wearing dog costumes complete with dog masks. They're rolling around parks pretending like they're urinating on things and they have relationships with their handlers or owners who, who engage them as if they're an animal. And this is a growing trend. This is not made up. That is insane. And that is just one among many possibly far less shocking realities that we see in our culture. And over and over again, we're reminded, our culture on this issue is insane, it's broken, it's chaotic, but the problem is not just out there. It's in here. You see, we rebel against God, just like others do in maybe different ways. We rebel against God. We want to go our own way. We want to decide how we are going to live on our own terms, and we make a mess of our lives. We make a mess of ourselves. 
You see, the four most important words, when you're considering the issue of of sexuality, when you're considering really any part of your life, the four most important words for you to know is in the beginning, God. Because God is your creator. He is the one who has created you. And he has designed you and he has wired you in a certain way and he knows how you work best, right? He knows how you, you experience life and blessing and joy as he has designed it to be experienced. But the problem is we don't like being told what to do. We like to be independent. We like to make our own choices and and figure things out ourselves. But the problem is you weren't created to be independent and to figure things out for yourself. You were created to be dependent upon God completely. You were created to listen to the truth of God's word. You were created to hear from God and respond. You see, this is what happened at the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. Is God created men to, and women to believe and listen to him and live as he created them to, to live in dependence and, and submission and obedience to him. And when they rejected that, when they went their own way, that's when everything fell apart. That's when chaos and death and destruction entered into creation. See, we will never escape the confusion and corruption and brokenness of this issue of sexuality with our culture until we start believing that we are not smarter than God. We have to stop believing that we are smarter than God. And we have to see that submission to God and submission to his design and his word does not squash our freedom. It gives us freedom. You see, from the very beginning, the lie that Satan told Adam and Eve, and it's the lie, it's the same exact lie that we hear inside of our minds every single day. And it's that God wants to keep you from pleasure, that God wants to withhold what's good for you. And we believe that lie so often. It's the most dangerous, most damning lie that we can believe. You see, God is our creator. He created pleasure. He created joy. He he created us in such a way that we can enjoy pleasure. But he created boundaries to keep us from destroying ourselves. Now, it's Memorial Day weekend, right? Right? And I can already begin to smell the grills firing up. One of my favorite things is a steak. Anybody like just a nice steak on the grill? Like I've been to a lot of places. I don't think you can beat just a grilled steak. And I am thankful to God that he has given me the pleasure of enjoying that steak. I apologize to anyone who's a vegetarian. But God has given pleasure in that. There is enjoyment in that. I worship God through that. 
But if I spent the entire Memorial Day weekend eating nothing but steak nonstop, I would die. There are boundaries that are put in place, not to prevent my pleasure, but to protect me from destruction. And God is the one who designed all of that. And God is the one who created those boundaries and he's given them to us, not to keep us from something, but to protect us from ourselves. And as we listen to that and believe that and trust in God, we will experience that blessing. Now, in order to know that, in order to to hear this truth, in order to live as God designed, we have to read the Bible. And I know this sounds like super basic, but but I'm more and more convinced that it's incredibly uncommon. But God has given us this truth. He's given us this guide. He's given us direction for our life to experience the blessing and avoid the brokenness. We need to to hear that. We need to immerse ourselves in that. We need to hear that truth over and over to where it it resonates within us, where we begin to change, to to think according to his truth and, and recognize the error and the lies in the culture around us. He has given us this word as a loving gift from our Father. And we need to take advantage of that and and receive that truth that he uses to lead and guide and direct us in our lives. Uh, The the author of the classic book, A Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan, wrote in the beginning of his Bible, at the front of his Bible, he said, either this book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. And it's a a super simple thing that a lot of people have, have repeated through the years, but it's incredibly true. Either this book will keep you from sin, engaging it, hearing it, believing the truth, or sin will keep you from this book. And so in this battle for purity, we have to fill our minds with the truth of God's word. Trust that our creator knows what's best for us. The second thing is we need to rest in the forgiveness of God's grace. We need to rest in the forgiveness of God's grace. Now, if it were up to us entirely to make these changes, to live pure lives, we would be hopeless. But the good news is it's not left to us, to our abilities, but God gives us his grace. And the first thing we have to understand in order to experience and receive that grace is that he offers us forgiveness through his grace. Colossians 2 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. What this book says is that in your life, when you sin, it doesn't, it's not like a bubble. I was blowing bubbles with my kids this weekend. It's not like a bubble where it just pops and kind of disappears. It says there is a record of debt, of sin debt that, that remains. And that, that God sees this record of sin debt and that this sin debt has to be paid. It's like a credit card bill, right? When you make swipes of the credit card, it doesn't avoid the bill. It's on the bill. It's kept record and you have to pay that. And that's what God says for our sin. There's the sin debt. It must be paid. And he says the payment is death. 
And that's where all of us are. But the good news of the gospel is that God made it possible for that debt, that payment to be paid for us. That on the cross, Jesus took our sin debt. He took all the guilt. He took all of our sin upon himself and he took the punishment. He took the payment. This passage says that he nailed that sin debt, that statement of debt to the cross and now it is paid in full. And what this means for us is, is as I'm speaking about these issues, immorality, lust, impurity, all of those, if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, if you have turned from your sin and trusted him, those sins have been forgiven. They have been washed clean. And you have to believe that. You have to rest in that grace if you are a Christian. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, the Bible say you are still in your sin. That, that debt is still over you. And the call that I would make today is trust in Christ as your Savior. Receive the forgiveness that he offers. We have a care and prayer room. We have people who are there right outside in the lobby who would love nothing more than to talk to you about trusting Christ as your Savior. But many of us have. We've trusted Christ. We've been saved. We've experienced the forgiven forgiveness of God. But the problem is, is that we still focus more on our sin and failures than the grace of God. What we still feel and think about our failures and our failings and our sin more than what God says about us. If, if God's word says that, that if we have trust in Christ, then we are completely forgiven, that our sin is removed for us as, as far as the east is from the west, that, that now we are perfectly righteous, that we are perfectly clean. And many of us simply need to, to stop trusting our feelings and our thoughts that condemn us and believe and trust in the grace of God to forgive our sins. We need to rest in that grace of God to forgive us. Because when it seems like it isn't true, it's because we're focusing more on yourself and your sin than you are on the grace of Jesus. And so some of us this morning in this battle towards purity, we have to experience that and rest in that forgiveness of the grace of God. But ultimately that leads us to the next point where we have to trust in the power of God's grace. So we don't simply experience the forgiveness of our sin debt, although that is incredibly wonderful and glorious and should fill our minds. But we don't simply focus on the forgiveness of our sins in the past we need something more than that, right? We need something to, to enable us to live a holy, righteous life moving forward. But that's what the gospel promises as well. The gospel is not just about forgiving your sin. The gospel is about giving you new power and ability to live a new life in Christ. The gospel is about giving you freedom from the power of sin, that you are no longer enslaved to sin. You are not, no longer defined by your sin. You're no longer the person who does this or the person who can't stop doing this. But now you have the grace of God and the power of God to battle sin and to find freedom. We see this in 2 Peter 1 verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may, be, may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. 
says you have everything that you need to live a godly life. If you are in Christ, this is true. You have everything you need. You sin, no, you no longer have to give in to sin. You don't. You're no longer in bondage to your past and your failures. You have the freedom. You have the ability to say no to sin. You have the ability to live a life of freedom and purity through the grace of God. But here's the deal. We don't actually experience that power because we don't really believe this on a moment-by-moment basis. We don't really believe that we have this power. And the way that you actualize, the way that you, you make this power available to you in your Christian life is by truly believing that it's true. So when you come to a situation where you are tempted to sin, the thoughts that we all are tempted to think are, I have failed in the past. This is appealing to me. This is, this is what I do. But you need to hear the truth of God that that is not who you are any longer. That you have a new identity. You have been raised with Christ. You are a new creation and you have the power of Christ. The power that is over the universe is inside of you and you have the freedom to say no and to say, to say no to sin and to say yes to godliness. But you miss out on that power. I miss out on that power because I don't believe it. I don't experience it in my life. I want to tell you that if you believe that, if you experience that truthfully, it will change fundamentally the way you look at yourself and the way you look at your life. Now, I have several friends and people around me who have sold houses recently and I want you to imagine that there is a house that's on the market and it is listed as a fixer-upper right? And there are two buyers who go to see this house. The first potential buyer walks in and he sees it as it is. So he sees that the chimney is literally crumbling. He sees that the porch is sunken in. He sees that the the painting and the wallpaper is outdated. The kitchen is from the 1930s. He sees a roof that should have been replaced 20 years ago. And when he sees all of this, he, he looks at it and he says, this is too much work. There's just too much damage to fix. So he gets in his car and he drives away. But then there's a second buyer who comes to see this house. And when he comes, he, he looks at the house and everywhere he looks, he sees the potential of what it could be. He sees the new wraparound porch with columns. He sees the new brick. He sees the updated paint. He sees the, the brand new kitchen. He sees the potential of beauty in this outdated structure. And he sees himself in it. He sees his kids playing in the front yard. He sees neighbors coming over for a home-cooked meal in the new kitchen. He sees the beauty that this could become and he believes that he has the resources and abilities to make it happen. When you look at the house of your life, of your marriage, 
What do you see? You see the failures. You see the brokenness. You think there's just too much work to actually make a difference? You think about just giving up? Or do you see it through the eyes of grace? You see the hope of the beauty of what could be. You see the potential that is the power of God working in you makes you into a man or a woman of purity regardless of what you've been in the past. You see the hope of a relationship with your spouse that's filled with love and commitment and purity. see the beauty of what God could do through his grace. And I promise you the way that you see yourself, the eyes that you have will make all of the difference. Because I can assure you there's no marriage that's so broken that God can't rescue it. There's no battle with sin that is so intense that Jesus cannot win the battle. There is no one who is too hopeless for the grace of Christ. And so as we close this morning, I realize as we've been in this marriage series these past few weeks, maybe even just this morning, there can easily be a, a a feeling of failure, a, a feeling of, of inadequacy or hopelessness. But I want to encourage the, you, us as a church this morning, that regardless of your failures, regardless of your past, regardless of how difficult it seems, that nothing is greater no obstacle, no sin has more power than the power of Jesus Christ to fix. And so I want us this morning to believe that. I want us to sing that, to hear that sung over us. That this morning, because of the grace of Christ, regardless of what's behind us, that as we look into the future of our lives, of our marriages, of our families, that we can say, not because of our own work, but because of the grace of Christ, it is well with my soul.